from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. It's the fifth chapter of Matthew, verses 13 through 20. We've been slowly pacing our way through the gospel of Matthew since the turn of the new year. We're now in the fifth chapter. We focused on the Beatitudes last week, and we continue into uh, some of the same way that Jesus talked in the Beatitudes. We continue in that same uh, sort of indicative mood kind of talk, declaring some things about those who are listening to his teaching. He begins by saying, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open uh, this ancient word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, yesterday I, I wrapped up the 11th consecutive season coaching at least one of my son's basketball team. And coaching at this level, when you're talking about elementary age kids or, or young middle schoolers, uh, really the main goal of the coach uh, is to make sure no one hurts themselves. Uh, and maybe in the second place, uh, creating an environment where the kids have fun, they wanna be with each other, and they begin to learn to love the game of basketball. And sometimes you get the opportunity to really do some coaches, coaching rather, around, around the fundamentals of the game, and, and perhaps they will remember something you taught them as they grow and as they age and as they progress through the sport. Earlier in the season, we were in a game, and, and we found ourselves down by 10 points at halftime, and I gathered the team close to me, sat them on the bench, and I looked them each in the eye, 
And I said, boys, keep your chin up. You got this. You're champions. You, you can play this game. You can do this. You can go out there and win. And guess what? We won the game 31 to 30. A couple weeks passed. We found ourselves in the same scenario, down by 10 at halftime. I thought, you know, it's time to pull out my go-to down by 10 at halftime speech. So I sat them on the bench, I looked them in the eye, I said, boys, you've got this. Keep your chin up, you're champions. You can do this. Get out there and beat this team. And we lost by three. In that second half of play, that, that other team, uh, they simply overpowered us. We, we couldn't erase the deficit. We took an L that Saturday afternoon. Sometimes I, I come to this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount, and I, I imagine Jesus like a coach speaking to his players at halftime. Maybe they're even down by 10. You know, he says, there is a decaying and dark world out there. And it may seem like the decay and the darkness will prevail, but you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So go out there and show them what you got. And sometimes, right, I, I leave the bench and, I, and I'm empowered. I can feel the, the spirit and I'm equipped to go out there to be salt and to be light. And there are times when the decay and the darkness subside. There are times when they lose their power. There are real days of victory. But there are also many times when I imagine Jesus speaking to me saying, you know, there's a, a decaying and dark world out there. And it may seem like the decay and the, and the darkness will prevail, but you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Go out there and show the world what you got. And I get up off the bench and I go out there and I get absolutely crushed. I get overpowered. Sometimes the decay, sometimes the darkness makes everything feel like a loss. My wife Katie uh, graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary in 2004, and the president at that time was Dr. Thomas Gillespie, and he delivered the commencement sermon. And he began his time with an illustration. He said, in the workroom of the president's office on the wall above the coffee maker hangs a framed piece of artwork enclosed in glass. A medieval castle appears in the distant background. A dragon lies on its back in the foreground, resting up against a tree. The dragon is using a lance as a toothpick, as if he has just finished his dinner. And scattered all around the ground are pieces of a knight's armor, breastplate, helmet, shield, and all the rest. And beneath this scene, a caption reads, no matter how hard you work, no matter how right you are, sometimes the dragon wins. He continued by saying that bit of wisdom is important to remember when you are a seminary president. It's also sage advice for seminary graduates who enter into the practice of ministry. And might I also add, that is also wise advice for those of us who call ourselves friends of God. 
for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ because he's right. Sometimes the dragon wins. Sometimes the decay wins. Sometimes the darkness wins. Sometimes we get crushed. Sometimes we get overpowered. Sometimes we get off the bench, get into the game, and bring salt and light into the world, and it is not enough to slay the dragon. It's not enough to preserve the earth. It's not enough to pierce the darkness of the world. Arthur Brooks uh, is a compelling social thinker, and, and he was asked to speak just this past week at the National Prayer Breakfast. And I think he addressed one of the most vicious dragons wreaking havoc in our time. He wanted to talk about a form of decay, about a form of darkness that seems to be claiming victory at every turn. It's something he frequently speaks about and writes about. He calls it the culture of contempt. And Brooks argues that the decay and the darkness of our time is not in civility, nor is it in tolerance. He suggests that the decay and darkness of our time is contempt. Contempt. The philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer defined contempt as the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of somebody else. And the culture of contempt these days has us choosing ideological enclaves, socio-political silos that have become so clear and well-defined. And it seems that this culture of contempt is constantly looking for an affront it's constantly on the prowl for an offense. It's looking to make a case. It's looking to make an accusation against the other that subsequently strips their worthiness, which is another way of saying diminishes their humanity. And in this decaying and dark social climate of ours, it seems everyone has an enemy. It seems like everyone has an enemy to burn. Christopher Edmonston is a dear friend of mine. He is the senior pastor of the White Memorial Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, in the state capital. He invited uh, one of his elders and a 20-year member of the church and a Sunday school teacher, a man by the name of Roy Cooper, to teach a class during the Sunday school hour on the opioid crisis in their state. Now, if Roy Cooper's name sounds familiar to you, that's because he's not just a good Presbyterian, he happens to be the governor of North Carolina as well. Governor Cooper is a Democrat. He is on President Donald Trump's commission on combating drug addiction and the opioid crisis. And so he has some measure of expertise to teach on this subject. As an aside, the commission represents a bipartisan effort out of the White House to fight this national epidemic. And so Mr. Cooper leaned into his Christian faith. He le leaned into the teachings of Jesus as he encouraged other Christians to join the cause to reduce opioid addiction across the state of North Carolina and in our country. The very next day, following that Sunday school class, Christopher received an email, and in the subject line it read, leaving White 
Memorial Church. The author of the email accused Christopher of holding a political rally at the church. A rally that elevated someone that this individual considered his enemy and said he had no place in the church. This individual was so incensed, so angered, so disgusted that Christopher would have allowed such a thing to happen that the man saw no other alternative but to leave the congregation and resign his membership. It didn't matter that Governor Cooper was working with the president on this dire health care issue. For that man that day, Cooper was the enemy, and he held him in contempt, and so he left the church. This is but one of a myriad of examples of the decay and the darkness that seems to be so pervasive across our national landscape. It seems as if the culture of contempt is the dragon breathing down everyone's neck. Communities and families and churches and synagogues and mosques and and neighborhoods and colleagues and politicians are divided and polarized in the greatest number since the Civil War. Just this past week, I was leaving a meeting and one of our elders, who by no means is someone that waves a political banner either way, said, Tony, I am concerned about the unity of our church. I'm concerned that we understand our commitment to one another as Christians in the midst of such divisive times, that we need to pray for one another and we need to talk about it. And it was that conversation that helped me read this particular text in light of our time and our place, because it is something I deeply care about, church. I deeply care about the unity of the church in our diversity and in our plurality. I care about what Christ has done in bringing us together as one body. I don't have to give you more examples. I don't have to give you more stories. We know this divisiveness to be true, but I want us to be clear about something. Jesus faced many dragons too. He lived and he taught in a very divided time. When he delivered the Sermon on the Mount, there was polarization. Make no mistake, there was polarization within the house of Israel. Different groups had different ideas about what righteousness looks like. They had different ideas of what faithfulness to God looks like. You had a group known as the Zealots who were radically nationalistic to the point that they thought it was the right thing that God was calling them to take up arms against Rome that they would violently respond to Roman occupiers. And then you had the Sadducees who took a very different approach. They actually cozied up to Rome, the Sadducees did. They made accommodations for Rome and Hellenistic culture and Greek uh, culture. They, They wanted not to rock the boat because what was most important to them was maintaining their liturgical fundamentalism to make sure that they were protected to do what they needed to do inside the temple. And so they wanted to make friends with Rome 
so that they could keep worshiping and observing the standards that they held themselves to. And then there was the group known as the Pharisees, the ones that Jesus references here in Matthew chapter 5. And they sort of fell between the Zealots and the Sadducees. They were, they were no friends to Rome at all, but they did not believe in violence. They did not believe taking up arms against the Roman occupier. But they were also more liberal than the Sadducees. They, they had more of an open interpretation of the law and what it meant for their living. And they had one other group. They were known as the Essenes. And the Essenes thought that the Zealots, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, and everybody was wrong. They thought everybody was apostate. And they said the best way to be faithful to God was to withdraw from the corrupt Roman and Greek world and to withdraw from the corrupt temple system and live in the wilderness a monastic life. Friends, we can't sugarcoat this in any way. Jesus was preaching in a divided time. He was preaching in a divided time. And I have a hunch that these groups, they had a passion to do what's right. They had a passion for God. But over time, right, we know this to be true. We spent three months doing a sermon series about how our passions can become distorted. And I have a hunch that, that these groups, that their passions became distorted. And instead of having a passion for God or a passion for righteousness, they began to have a passion for being right. And they began to have a passion for control. And they began to have a passion to rise up over and against others in a quest for authority and power. They had a passion, I believe, for contempt. And the number one exhibit of that passion for contempt is Jesus himself. Because he experienced the full wrath of contempt as he was nailed to a cross. They had passion for their own political and religious worldviews over and against others. And friends, this is where I find Jesus to be so refreshing and so relevant and so necessary. Because when Jesus calls us salt and light, he doesn't say that you are the salt or the light of the temple. He doesn't say you're the salt or the light of the church. He doesn't say that you're the salt and the light of your political convictions or your social groups. He doesn't say that you're salt or light of your individual lives or your home. He doesn't say you're salt or light for your enclave. No, he says you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Jesus' vision is such more, so much more vast and expansive and inclusive and totalizing. You, my disciples, exist for the preservation not of your ideologies, not of your party affiliation. You exist to preserve the whole earth. You exist to light up the whole world. So what does the Christian, what does the church in a divided time, in a culture of contempt, in a day when dragons are winning and decay and darkness are eating away at our social fabric, what is required of the Christian? That's what I care about this morning. What is required of the church? And I think what is required of us is to live into our identity as salt 
and light for the earth and for the world. That we must get off the bench, out of our enclaves, and affirm that we belong to the tribe of Christ, which transcends every other affiliation we carry, doctrinal, political, or social. You are salt, he says. You are light for the earth and for the world, not just for your religion, not just for your zip code, not just for your political party, not just for people who think like you and believe like you and who look like you, but you are salt and you are light for everyone. And friends, I think that's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, unless it goes beyond the enclaves, unless it goes beyond all of these tribes, unless it moves to that place, you're never gonna know the fullness and the breadth and the depth and the joy of the kingdom of God. Friends, would you pray with me? Living and loving God, we come into this space. Many of us feel pummeled and defeated and despairing. God, it's easy for each of us to imagine dragons that we each face individually and communally. Illnesses that cut us off from loved ones. Mental health struggles that separate us even from ourselves. And for a climate and a culture of discord and contempt, that seems to make it impossible for us to connect with those that we differ with. God, we live in a world and on an earth that is desperate for salt and light, that literally groans for new creation and for the revelation of the children of God who are salt and light. And so God, in this space and in our hearts and in our world, in our houses and in our interactions, may we become, may we be salt and light. May we be reminded of the example of Christ who welcomed all, as the Apostle Paul says, welcomed all of us even when we were enemies even when we were set against you and your ways. And that it is that example that calls us then to welcome one another with that same sort of love, that same sort of grace, that same sort of integrity. Help us, Lord, even as we know and experience a dark and decaying world. Let us be salt and light. 
and help us to be people of hope instead of despair and people of abundant welcome. God, we pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, in response to all the good things that God has done for us, let us return to God the offerings of our lives and the gifts of the earth.
the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Oh. 